So we cannot take one away from God and then still call him God. We cannot take one away from him and still say that he is sovereign because it is through all of them, all three of them, that God governs his creation. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I think that's a very interesting verse, especially in the context of our passage this morning. See, God does not cause sin, because the passage says that every perfect gift comes from above. Every perfect gift comes from the Father, who does not change. But in his sovereignty, in his providence, he works through sin to bring about his good purpose. He is in the details of life. He is involved in everything, even in sin. I think that's really important to think about whether it's whether you're looking at your life and you're thinking, well, there's a lot of good things that have happened to me and there are a lot of bad things that have happened to me. Not only that, but it's important to think about in the good things you have done and also in the bad things you have done in your own life. Maybe as you're thinking about all this, you have some questions. Here are some that I came up whenever I sat down and started looking at this. Why have things turned out the way they have for me? Let me make it personal for you. Why have things turned out the way they have for you? What is God doing in the details of your life? And finally, what's his purpose for you? What's his purpose for you? See, no matter if you're young or old, rich or poor, a believer or a non-believer, God has a plan and a purpose for you. He surely does. And his plan and his purpose depends on the condition on your heart. Or rather, his plan and purpose for you depends on the condition of your heart. Is your heart faithful towards God or is it a rebellious heart? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the difference between the two hearts. And we're also going to learn how God works out his purpose for both. I want to look at the faithful heart first. And in our passage, the faithful heart is displayed by David. He is considered the faithful son here. Now, last week we looked at Uh, We looked at David and how he was able to fight off bitterness in his heart for Saul. And we looked at how David's men were not able to fight off bitterness for Saul in their their hearts. Uh, They wanted retribution against Saul and they had their opportunity. It was by God's providence that, that God brought Saul into the very cave that they were hiding in, that David and his men were hiding in. He had to go in there and relieve himself. So that meant he was alone and that meant he was defenseless. And so when David's men, including David, saw Saul coming in, no telling what they first thought. They probably thought, oh, no, we're we're gone. We're dead. He found us. But then once they realized he did not know they were there, they thought this was God's gift to them. God was giving Saul into their hands. In fact, they went as far as to say, no, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Remember David? 
Remember when God told you that your enemy will be given into your hands? Well, this is the moment. Take your sword and drive it through Saul. Kill him. Take your place, your rightful place. You've already been anointed. Take your rightful place as king and all this suffering will be over, not only for you, but for all of us. So it seemed like a golden opportunity, but the issue was it would have been sinful for them to kill Saul. See, David realized this and he worked to convince and to restrain his men from carrying out the desires of their hearts. He had to convince and restrain them. It wasn't as if they were passive about it or agreeable with him. Scripture goes into detail to show us the words that is used in Scripture. He had to convince and restrain them because they wanted to carry out this sinful desire. But if they would have done it, they would have been no better than Saul. And so we see David here and we see him probably at his best. Because we know what's coming up next. We know what happens in 2 Samuel. But right now we see him at his best. See, through all of David's, through all of this, through all of everything that has occurred, David's heart displayed love and obedience to God, and we should look at that. There are certain things that are present in his life that we as Christians should look at, and we should say, you know what? Those are good and godly things. Are those things existent in my life? For instance, we see that David had conviction. When his men were telling him to kill Saul, he decided to sneak up on Saul and cut a corner of his robe instead of killing him. And maybe he was already thinking about the moment that when Saul walked out of the cave, just as he did in Scripture, he was going to hold the corner up and he was going to say, hey, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't look. As proof, I have the corner of your robe in my hand. I've shown you mercy. Maybe he had the forethought of that, or maybe he, maybe he just he was wanting to kill Saul, but he restrained himself and instead cut off the corner of his robe just to see how he would feel after that. And Scripture says that he was cut to the heart. Scripture says that he was convicted. In fact, it says that his heart was struck, was struck with conviction. The word struck there, it's to be, it translates to be beaten. So in other words, the spirit struck his heart and he felt conviction, a strong conviction for just cutting the corner off of Saul's robe. But this is the guy who's been after him for years. David has done nothing to him. And yet God convicted him of just cutting his robe. Look what it says in verse five. And after. And afterward, after cutting his the the corner of Saul's robe, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Oh, there was a strong conviction for what he had done. It was a conviction that his his men did not have. But yet God gave it to him. Not only that, but there was restraint. You see, to have conviction is one thing, but to restrain oneself from sinning is something completely different. 
There are many times where we have conviction and we feel bad for what we are doing, but yet we continue to do it even though we know it is wrong. And we cannot, for one reason or another, restrain ourselves from that particular sin. Well, David showed restraint because in verse 6, he says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Even just cutting the corner of his robe convicted him. He could have gone all the way through and killed him. His men wanted him to. He would have been the hero, but he restrained himself. He also had respect. I think it's very important to notice that David remained respectful towards Saul the whole time. Saul chased him down like a dog. And he, he tried to, to kill him many times. And it's not recorded in scripture that David said one ill word against him. In fact, if you look at verse 8, when Saul walks out of the cave, look at what David, how David addresses Saul. He says, my Lord, the king. And Saul looked behind him. And David bowed with his face to the earth. and He paid homage to Saul. See, as I look at that, I think of two ways in which David had respect for Saul. Number one, as an image bearer of God. He had respect for Saul as an image bearer of God. Number two, he had respect for Saul as the Lord's anointed king. It was by the Lord's providence that Saul was in that position. So David respected Saul for that. Really, it was out of reverence for Christ that he respected him. Also, David shows mercy. See, David returned mercy for evil. Although Saul hunted him down like an animal for unjust reasons, David let him live. Verse 10 he says, behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I let you walk out of here. David displayed trust in the Lord. He trusted the Lord to protect him. And not only that, but also to avenge him. Look at verse 10 again. He said, I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. He says, I, no matter what you've done to me, I'm trusting the Lord that the Lord is going to protect me and avenge me. And then the last thing we see is that he had humility. Although David was admired by many, in fact, more people admired David than they admired Saul. That's why Saul became jealous and was chasing him down to kill him. Although he was admired by many, David saw himself as small 
and insignificant. Look at verse 14. He calls himself, he says, why are you chasing after me? After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? Nothing compared to you. Why are you chasing after me? My life is small. See, in this passage, David is an image of a repentant sinner. I think everything that we just went through is very important for us to look at and to really understand. See, a man, he is a man who has left his life of sin uh, to follow his Lord, to follow his Savior. He is a man after God's own heart. He is a man that God prophesied about, that God told Samuel about, that God promised to be on the throne. It reminds me of the passage from Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. As I look at this, David is the faithful son whose heart had been changed by the Lord. The Lord was doing this through him. His life was marked by good spiritual fruit. Now, if we're looking at this passage and we say David reflects the image of a repentant sinner. I want us to really think about our own lives right here and right now. Now, inside your mind, ask yourself. How many of his traits match up with the traits that I consistently display in my own life? Do you live a life of conviction? Are you cut to the heart when you sin? Is it just a little bit where it's just like, oh, man, I did something wrong and I move on? Have you grieved the Holy Spirit enough to where you barely even notice that you are sinning? Or does the Lord's. Does the Lord's spirit strike you when you sin? Does it injure you because you have sinned against the Lord? Do you show restraint? As I said before, it's one thing to say, I feel bad for what I've done, but do you show restraint? Do you fight against the sin that comes, that comes against you? Are you happy to see that sin? Instead of trading blows, are you trading hugs with your sin and saying, I've missed you so much? Or do you have humility in your service to the Lord? Do you see yourself as insignificant and nothing compared to who God is? Are you respectful and merciful? Towards others. And before you say amen, let me say, are you respectful and merciful towards your enemies? Are you trusting of the Lord? Are, are you always complaining about your circumstance to the Lord? Saying it's not fair. I, things should be different. I don't deserve this. So are you trusting of the Lord and of his providence? See, these are all traits that should be 
recognize on a regular basis in a Christian's walk. They are the fruit of the Spirit working in you to glorify God. They must be visible. They must be visible on a regular basis. Remember, we're not doing things under our own power, but it is by the power of the Lord. When he changes our hearts and when his spirit is in us, the spirit does these works. And we resemble the son of God. Well, let's look at the other son, the rebellious son. We talked about the faithful son. Now let's talk about the rebellious son. And obviously I'm talking about Saul here. He was given every chance to obey and enjoy God's blessings. But he squandered every opportunity. It wasn't as if he was treated harshly by God. Or unfairly by God. He was given every advantage that David was given and probably even more. But yet he squandered every opportunity. He continually disobeyed the word of the Lord. He had the honor of being Israel's first king. Think about that for a moment. The honor that was bestowed upon him. He had the chance to set the example for all the other kings after him. He had the opportunity to probably be greater than Moses for the Jews. He had all this promise to his life. But he was insecure, he was a coward, and he was a king for himself, not for the Lord. He sought after personal gain, and he treated people harshly. And towards the end, this is the worst part of his life, towards the end, he became so consumed with bitterness and hatred that he began to murder innocent people. He murdered the whole priesthood of God. And not only the men, but also the women and the children. He just completely took them out. Out of bitterness and hatred. And then he hunted down David and his men like animals. And we see in scripture that God tormented him with a harsh spirit. And the worst thing of all, at least when I look at this, is that God never gave him rest From his labor of hate. That's a miserable existence. To never have rest. And to always have hate. You see how sad is it to live a life. Chasing after the wind as Solomon would say. Not being content with the blessings of your work. Or of your toil. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. God, notice Solomon, wise man, second wisest man who ever lived. He said, this is your lot in life. To enjoy what God has given you to do. 
to eat, to drink, and to find enjoyment in your work. That is your lot. That's what you should do. Imagine living a life where you're just always chasing the wind. You're never satisfied with any of the blessings God has given you. You're always wanting more. You're always chasing for more. And yet you never reach it. You never attain it. That is a miserable existence. Saul was cursed by God and could not enjoy his blessings because his heart was hard. See, in our passage, we see his rebellious nature at the forefront of his ways. We pointed out the good fruit of David. Well, let's point out the bad fruit of Saul. He was carnal. That meant he cherished and obeyed the words of man over the words of God. David even challenged this with him. He said in verse 9, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Obviously, those words were false. Why do you not listen to what God has told you to do, Saul? You're so busy chasing after me. You're so busy listening to your advisors and your servants and your helpers. But what about what God has called you to do? Saul was disobedient. Saul admits that David has been more righteous than he and that he only has been disobedient to the Lord. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, Saul said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. See, this is not a man who did not know what he was doing. This is not an ignorant man. He knows full well what he is doing, and yet he continues to do it. Why? Because, number three, he's unrepentant. You see, although Saul was convicted by, his, by the way he treated David, and, and it shows him weeping. He, he says, oh, you could have killed me. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what I've done to you. He's already done this a couple of times. And as we look through this book, we're going to see just a couple of chapters later, saw this conviction and crying and all this emotion that he's feeling and he's displaying right now. It's all going to change because all it takes is one servant to come and tell Saul, hey, I hear David is at this place right now. And he gets up and goes back and chases after David again. It looks like repentance. It's like, oh, man, you see, he's cut to the heart. He's crying. Well, just because someone is crying doesn't mean that they've repented. A lot of times we think that as Christians, we're like, oh, our kids are crying. Oh, my wife is crying. My husband's crying. Oh, my boss is crying or my pastor's crying. That means he's really, really sorry. No, wait. Wait and see the fruit that comes afterward. Wait for the change. Wait for the turning away from that sin to see if they're really sorry and if they've really repented. And then we see that Saul was an idolater of self. Saul was concerned about his own well-being over God's will. And he knows, I have disobeyed God this whole time. But notice what he says in verses 20 and 21. This is his concern. 
He says, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. That's, that's something right there. That's what's, that's what's fueling this bitterness and this hatred towards David. He knows in his heart. That means he knows what he's doing is for naught, and yet he continues to do it. That, that's the picture of, of the unrepentant heart. They know They know where their heart is taking them, and yet they continue to follow it. But look, verse 21. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. That's what he's concerned about. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. That's what he's concerned about. I, 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 I. I know God's going to give this kingdom over to you, but... Please don't ruin my name. At my funeral, say good things about me. Don't talk about me bad. Don't talk about my secrets or what I've done or how I've treated people. Just mention the good things. Saul is the image of the unrepentant sinner. If David is a repentant sinner, then Saul is the image of the unrepentant sinner. A man who has recognized his sin but yet continues to live in it. He is a man after his own heart. Romans 1 says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's Romans 1.32. See, Saul is the rebellious son whose heart remains hard and cold towards God and the things of God. When I first started preaching through Samuel, I was on the fence with Saul. Saw some things earlier on, and I was, I, I was, I was cheering for him. I was like, I want Saul to be saved, as if I could do anything about it. But you know how you're watching a movie and you're cheering for a certain character. You want it to work out for him. And as I studied and studied and studied through this book, I'm like, oh no, Saul. He's wicked. He's unrepentant. He's Romans 1. He's a disobedient, sinful, prideful, never able or willing to submit to God. He is Romans 1. He is the reprobate. Uh, Hey, I'm 99.9% convinced only God knows. And if you want to join me, you can. If you want to say, hey, no, I think Saul is saved, then, then that's great. We'll find out in glory, right? And if I owe Saul an apology, I'll be the very first one to say it. But I don't think he's there. As we look at his life. Even if we look down the corridor of scripture, it never refers back to him saying, no, he is among the elect. It's sad. Because he was counted amongst God's people. Even more than that, he led God's people. 
You want to say, no, he's saved. That's like when I look out here, I see all my brothers and sisters before me. And most of you come week after week and we've known each other for years and I want to say they are saved. I want in my heart to say that. But we know just being amongst God's people doesn't save us. Our fruits speak for themselves. Saul is wicked and his life was marked by wickedness. If Saul reflects the image of an unrepentant sinner, how many of his traits match up with your traits, the traits that you display on a consistent basis? Do this exercise with me again. Think in your mind. Are you carnal in your thinking? What matters to you more? What man has to say to you or what God has to say? Where do you put more emphasis or importance on the word of man or the word of God? Are you disobedient towards God? And also, are you disobedient towards those who God has placed over you? Do you just refuse? You're like, I, no, I just refuse. And I'm not talking about as they lead you to sin, but I'm just talking about you're just rebellious anyway. You have, authority, you have God-given authority over your life, and you're like, I'm not listening to nobody. I'm going to be my own person. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Are you so consumed with your life, your well-being, and your comfort that you are not following the commands of God. Because that's what Saul was doing. Notice in verse 20, 21, what was, what was his agenda? What was he worried about? Me, me, me. I don't want this kingdom, even though I know this kingdom's going to be taken from me, I still want to be king. I want my, John, my son Jonathan to be king. I want my name to be proclaimed amongst the whole kingdom. Should have been, I want the name of the Lord to be proclaimed throughout this whole kingdom. But are you so consumed with your life and your well-being and your comfort over what God has called you to do? These traits should not be seen regularly in a Christian's life. Why? Because they are works of the enemy. These are things we do when we sin. We should be repenting when we sin. These aren't things that we should accept into our life and just do them as freely as we want. We should be dying to these things and living for Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the picture of the Christian. That is what we should look like on a regular basis. Now, seeing these two men, seeing these two hearts, a faithful heart, rebellious heart, 
we need to understand that God is the Lord of both. See, in our passage, there are two men who serve one Lord. See, these two men have different hearts, yet they serve one Lord. These men live two different lives, yet they serve one Lord. These men have two different destinies, yet they serve one Lord. And if we're careful to look at the Bible throughout the course of biblical history, we see example after example of the godly and the ungodly fulfilling the purposes of a sovereign God. It's not just, oh, no, it's just the righteous people who are doing God's work. And who are accomplishing God's will. We can't say that. Why? Well, because there's Cain and Abel that we have to talk about and think about. God's providence was over both men. He didn't cause Cain to sin. Even he told he told Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Resist it. And yet Cain gave into it. God didn't cause that. Cain's evil, wicked heart caused that. But God worked through that sin to bring about his purpose. Abel. The only thing we know about Abel is that he was a good guy and he got killed by his brother. And if we were there and if we we look at, at, at the Bible as a newspaper, we'd be infuriated. We'd be like, Abel didn't do anything wrong. Why was he treated that way? His life was, he had a tragic ending. That's not fair. But yet God used it to achieve his purpose. You see, Cain, Abel, and it goes, it goes on and on. Abraham, Lot, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. In every case, we see God's power working through their lives to bring about the purpose for which he created them. Upon one He shows mercy upon the other. He does not. And one man, he creates in him a new heart, a heart of flesh. And puts his spirit in him to cause him to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. He does this to one man. To this man, his heart is made compatible, meaning it fits in and it works with the nature and the will of God. This man lives to please the Lord through a life of service and devotion. Now in the other man, we see it clearly that God removes his grace from him and allows his heart to grow hard and cold. It's like the picture of the potter As the potter sits down with the clay to mold it, as long as the potter's hands are on the clay, as long as the clay is wet, it could be shaped and molded. But once the potter removes his hands from the clay, it just sits there and it hardens. And that's the way it's going to be. It only gets harder. This man's heart, instead of being compatible, it is contrary with the nature of And the will of God. He does not live to please God. Rather he lives to please himself. Over the God who created him. And blessed him. 
As we look at our passage, David's actions are reflective of a heart that has been changed by God. I do not want to give David any credit for this. I do not want to glorify David in any way for this. Neither should we receive glory for our good works, because every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. But he is, his heart is reflective of a heart that has been changed by God. And Saul's actions are reflective of a heart that has not been changed. Now here's the question of the day. If you haven't paid attention to anything. And if you've been asleep the whole time, wake up now because this is the important question of the day. The question you must answer today is which person am I? That's the question you have to answer. If your heart has been changed, then praise God and continue to serve him with everything that you are and everything that you have. Now, I would hope that's the majority of you in here. I would hope that that's everybody in here that you can sit there and you say, no, my heart has changed. I'm praising God for that. And I'm going to serve him with everything that I am and everything that I have. Now, listen, if that is you, awesome but you know I'm not going to let you leave here without challenging you with the gospel. If that is you, that's great. Stand firm in your faith. Because God is the one who has given you that faith. God is the one who has put you where you are at. It is by the grace of God that you are who you are. But are you serving him with everything that you are and everything that you have. That's my challenge to you. Is your life marked with conviction, restraint, respect, mercy, trust, and humility? And so on and so on and so on. Are you serving the living God? Are you truly, truly Serving him with everything that you are and everything that you have. I, I want to do a test real quick. I, if you would, please trust me to close your eyes. I'm not going to throw anything at you. Close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think, I want you to picture the cross. And upon this cross is a man who hangs there. And he is grotesque. He is ugly. He has been beaten. He is bleeding. He is gasping for air. He is barely alive. You know who you see. You see your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as you sit there, it's just you and him. You're at the foot of the cross. You're looking at him and you're seeing this pitiful display of a, of, of, of a, of a, of a man who hangs there. Clinging to life. Now I want you to think about your sins and what, what excuses you make up in your life for not doing what God has called you to do. And I want you to have a personal conversation with him. As he is breathing, as he is dying, I want you to give him those excuses. Tell him why you haven't done what he has called you to do. Tell him. Tell him why you cling to the things that he has given you so hard. 
Tell him why you're worried so much about yourself and your name. Give him whatever excuse you want as he hangs there dying because of you. It's your sin who has nailed him to the cross. Don't tell me you serve him with everything that you have and everything that you are. That's between you and him, but whatever excuses you have, they must be done away with. You can open your eyes now. As I looked at this sermon, as I was preparing it, I did the exact same thing you did, and I came to nothing. I was this small. I'm surprised I'm holding it together right now. It's the Lord who's helping me. When you have that picture in your head and you think through that and you think about the things that you, that the way or the ideas or whatever it is, the excuses you make every day for not doing the things you ought to do, it's really silly when you see Christ crucified. Now for the other person. If your heart has not been changed. Obviously I'm not going to let you get out of here either without challenging you with the gospel. If your heart has not been changed. If you look at Saul and you say wait a second. Saul and I have a lot in common. I can see my life in Saul. I plead with you. Get upon your knees and cry out to God to change your heart. See, don't believe the weak gospel of man. That's one of our biggest problems today. There's this gospel of man that has no strength, has no power. And people are believing it. And I really need the young people to look at me and to really think about what I'm saying. Do not believe the weak gospel of man because the weak gospel of man and the way people are brought up to the front And the way people are baptized so often is because there is this invite that goes out to everybody and it says, God needs you. You are special. You are so special that God needs you on his side. You are his David. You need to go out and fight these battles for God. If only God had you, his team would be great. And it's like this, I don't, know, I don't know what it is really, but it's just this invitation for you, you who are awesome, great, wonderful, to come and help a pitiful, poor God because he can't do it without you. That's not, that's not the gospel. I, I want to tell you what the gospel is, especially those who are younger. Look at me. 
God does not need you. You need God. God's not waiting for you. He's not a God that only foreknows that you're going to be saved, but he can't do anything about it. That's not God. The true gospel says his sheep hear his voice. Plain and simple. If you're not hearing the voice of God, not audibly, through his word, if you're not hearing the voice of God calling your name through scripture, you ain't his. Plain and simple. The true gospel says, no one comes to Christ unless my father draws him in. God doesn't need you. You're blessed if he draws you in. You're not picking God. God has elected you. The true gospel says, I, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. It ain't about you receiving stuff just to say, oh, no, you need my permission so I can receive it. Lord, I give you my permission to give me your spirit. No, that's not it. God says, I do this. The only thing that you can do and the only thing that you should do, if you do not know Christ, if your heart is hard and your life is like Saul, get upon your knees and cry out to God. Plead with him, ask him, beg him. Say to him, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Please, Lord, do this for me. For it is by grace through faith that you have been saved. If you know, and I know you know, if you know you do not have Christ, you do not have time to waste. I would pray and I would ask him for salvation and for the help that you can only get from him. Let us pray.